For the first time, change came quickly to policing in San Diego. Following the series of protests for racial justice sweeping the nation, the San Diego Police Department and all other policing agencies in the region have banned the carotid restraint. The move was welcome. The optics were not. For years, policing agencies have been arguing that the tool was necessary, but the swiftness of this change undermines that claim. It appears this move may be motivated more by politics than policy. For the San Diego Union-Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is your San Diego News Fix. Greg Moran, you're on the public safety team and you cover legal affairs. And I think it's helpful to understand what's going on through the lens of someone that's experienced this restraint. So tell us, what happened to Robert Branch III? Well, Robert Branch III was a a security guard in 2015, and he was on his way home um, uh, up the freeway when he he got into kind of a a strange uh, confrontation with an off-duty San Diego sheriff's uh, deputy, a a longtime deputy, who said he had been driving erratically, the the deputy followed him for, I think, nine miles uh, off the freeway. And when they had both stopped, the the deputy approached him and began to question him. Uh, uh, They got into a struggle uh, that ended up uh, with both of them rolling around on the ground. Um, All the while, Robert Branch III was uh, filming this on his camera. Uh, and while they were on the ground and wrestling, uh, the deputy, a guy named Paul Ward, uh, put a, a hold on him, a neck hold on him. Um, Branch passed out momentarily, released the hold. He got up and uh, uh, the situation was resolved with uh, Branch ultimately being charged by the district attorney's office for resisting arrest and other uh, crimes. Um he was ultimately convicted of that at a trial in 2015. Um, what was interesting, the trial really came down to this issue of what happened during the hold. At the time, the prosecution and Paul Ward said that he had put a carotid restraint on him, uh, kind of the sleeper hold, uh, which is at the time was acceptable and legal to use. Um, the defense had said that no, it was actually a chokehold that he used an arm bar that uh, pressured against his throat and stopped him from breathing. Uh, so after the uh, uh, acquittal, um, Branch had filed a lawsuit, a civil rights lawsuit against the sheriff's office, which eventually settled for $137,000. But it was one of a number of kind of notorious incidents in the county both the city and the county agencies, where the use of this hold really came under scrutiny uh, by uh, both sides. Hmm. And prior to the events of the past few weeks, where it's been a band, of course, how frequently was this tool used? You know, with some frequency, there was, uh, uh, I think, in the five-year period between 2013 and 2018, um, so this is a, a use of force. It was a use of force. So they, police agencies have to document every time they, they use force. In, in that time, it was used in the city of San Diego about 500 times. Uh, and by the San Diego Sheriff's Office, uh, roughly the same, about 480 times. I think that's outside of the jails, but on patrol in that five-year period. And in both cases, the hold was used um, – uh, a lot uh, more frequently on uh, black people and people of color than 
uh, white people, the San Diego Police Department put black people on holds in that hold uh, 130 times, about 26% of the total time. Blacks in the city account for about 6.5% of the population. Sheriff's Office uh, put blacks in the hold 103 times, which is about 21% of their total use. And in the county, blacks are about 5.5% of the population. So this was one of the controversial points and one of the reasons why advocates for so long had been asking for demanding really that the restraint be abandoned is that not only was it dangerous, um, it can cause death if it's not applied correctly, uh, long-term injury, uh, and just a lot of psychological trauma, uh, but that it was also being used disproportionately against people of color. Mm. Yeah, it certainly wraps up kind of the events of the past several weeks in a nutshell of what happened to Robert Branch is indicative of this kind of way of using this tool that now they say it wasn't necessary. Yeah, that was uh, that's what happened earlier this month as the protests uh, in the street began to kind of gain a lot of momentum. And there was this explosion in the conversation about policing, uh, police approaches, police tactics and so forth uh, and uh, calls to defund the police. You know, everything we've been writing about in the paper. And it was just interesting to me that um, after, you know, people have been advocating and asking and and really demanding that the departments abandon this tactic um, for several years at least. And it it really goes back longer than that, but really a concerted effort of the last three or four years in the city of San Diego. And we're met with just this insistence really from both the policing and the political authorities uh, that... Uh, no, that this was uh, safe. It was a legitimate tactic, and it was something that that the police needed to do their job. And it was just stunning to me um, that after all these years and all of this rhetoric and insistence and resistance to abandoning this in the space of forty eight hours, that the thing the attitude was like, well, actually, we really don't need it that much. We can get rid of this. It's mm-hmm. quite a turnaround. And what do we know about the inner workings, the political movements during those 48 hours? What do we know about that sudden shift? You know, I don't know what drove it. I mean, I, I know that in the story that we wrote and, and you talked to a lot of the advocates, they didn't have any, they've been having many discussions over the years uh, with the Racial Justice Coalition uh, and other uh, advocacy groups, you know, discussions with the, uh, the local police and politicians about this and they had no notice. They had no heads up that they were uh, that this was really that this was going to be going to happen. Um, so I don't know exactly what was um, the calculations, the political calculations, or the policy calculations behind it. I can guess, and I think it's a pretty good guess that day after day after day after day of mounting protests and criticism and uh, insistence from. You know, really across the spectrum, you've seen in these protests, a lot of different people are coming to them, not just the communities, uh, black and Hispanic and Asian communities who are often, uh, you know, affected most by uh, racial police, uh, racial policing and so forth. But uh, all, all kinds of people in Zadia were coming out and saying enough. I think the main political calculation was we have to do something. Um, you know, we, we have to look like we're responding um, you know, we, we have to look like we're, that we hear them. And, and I think that this tactic or this technique, uh, suddenly became disposable. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, certainly how everything kind of happened in San Diego, we could be having an entirely different conversation if things got more intense following the the protest turn riot in La Mesa. But you notice from the sheriff, from the police, kind of day three and four of these protests, the conversation really shifted and you could see them tweeting saying that this is a peaceful protest, everything's peaceful. It seems like this was kind of a PR strategy to kind of calm people down and show that they were listening, even if just, you know, sending out tweets. Yeah. And that's clearly a couple of the people I interviewed for the story who have been very involved in this in this effort to, to convince the uh, the police in San Diego to abandon the carotid restraint, frankly, said that. And they just said, look, this was a, you know, yeah, it's they, they thought that they had been having an effect you know, that they're constantly raising this at meetings and review boards and, and so forth, um, you know, was, you know, beginning to, to move the discussion. But, you know, as, as recently as a couple of years ago, the police department, you know, wrote a 23-page memo saying why, you know, why uh, they were going to continue to use it and essentially defending its use. So their thought was, I mean, look, I, I think that they're they're happy that it's no longer part of the use of force uh you know, tools or, or continuum or whatever, but um, they're also not dumb. And, and I think they recognized that this was, you know, the only thing that really had changed, uh, that this was political, that, that politically motivated more than a thoughtful policy uh, decision that, that uh, kind of took in a lot of different factors. And, and I think the reason they think that is because a month ago, you know, there weren't people in the streets and, and, uh, uh, you know, the carotid, uh, restraint was, was a, a legitimate tactic. And the only thing that changed a month, maybe six weeks ago to now is there were people in the streets talking about changing the police. So, you know, draw your own conclusions, but I mean, I think, I, I clearly think that there was, that there was a sense and it is, uh, it is responsive, um, you know, that, that they, uh, they wanted to show that they, that they heard and understood what the concerns were. At the same time, not, you know, not really um, reform, significantly reform the police department. You know, this looks like a big reform. A lot of uh, advocates, criminal justice reform advocates I spoke to were like, yeah, it's good, but it it took way too long. And uh, the speed at which they abandoned it in, in some ways is an indication of how not particularly useful it was, you know, that they really, this was something they, th- they thought they could get rid of pretty quickly. If it was a really, really vital, I mean, like, you know, if the call had been get rid of police guns, uh, I mean, I don't think you'd see them, you know, give up their guns in, in the space of 48 hours. So, you know, uh, I think there, there is a recognition that uh, this is a good step forward, but, you know, it took, it took thousands of people in the streets uh, consistently day after day after day to kind of move the needle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's we're in a societal level negotiation with the way that policing works. And this is just kind of the first, you know, concession from the ways that things have been for about the first, you know, last 20 years. So what are you hearing from advocates? What do you think is the next thing that they're going to push for? Because there's a number of ways of changing how we're policing. So it's curious what people in San Diego are arguing for. Yeah, I asked a little bit of Darwin Fishman and Yusuf Miller of the Racial Justice Coalition who were very involved in this. Uh, and they had a couple of interesting answers. But first, I think it's also important to point out, you know, the way that this went down is that the sheriff's department, the sheriff, you know, Bill Gore, 
when the city and the mayor and the police chief and the city said, we're going to abandon it, uh, the next day, the sheriff came out and said, we're not. Uh, and then only the day after that did he kind of say, yes, okay, we're not going to do it anymore. So there was still this large institutional reluctance uh, to go that way, to, to, to get rid of this. So what's next? I mean, that's a good question. And, and part of their answer is there's not one thing that's next. You know, they, they see this, uh, and I think many reform advocates see this as, as kind of like a whole suite or a whole uh, uh, a collection, a constellation of issues and problems with policing that they think have to be addressed. But in terms of, you know, use of force specifically, I think there are, and I don't, you know, we did talk about this a little bit, but I think there are concerns about the use of canines, about mm-hmm. dogs, uh, how those are used, uh, when they're used, who they're used on, um, and, you know, how they are deployed, you know, like um, not just who and when, but what the command is and how long the dogs are allowed to latch on to somebody. I think that's something that uh, if you're talking, talking about, you know, changing use of force, that's something that that uh, people probably are, are, are going to want um, police departments to take a closer look at. So mm-hmm. I would, I think that's maybe something that's coming up. Yeah, and also one big development was the creation of the new office on race and equity. Uh, has anyone mentioned that as a place where these discussions can continue? You know, not specifically, uh, Daniel. I think because it's such a new idea, and and it's such a and uh, and and you know, everybody knows kind of even where the office is, like physically, yeah. who's going to be there, and kind of kind of what. Mm-hmm what the mandate is, um, you know, and I think all that will have to come out. And you have to remember that that will only really only apply to the city of San Diego, uh, not to the county at large or any other departments. But it's, uh, I mean, I, I think people are are happy to see it and anxious to see what it will do. And it is part of this uh, growing call for uh broader and and kind of more inclusive oversight of police and policing authorities, not just consigning it to a citizens review board, not, not that that's bad, or or you know the internal reviews of, of departments and agencies, but 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 broadening this out into and not just into police tactics, but the other issues of race and ethnicity that <clears throat> Uh, you know, are, are, are part of, of the city and and that oftentimes in, in the inequalities and disparities in those issues in housing and education and healthcare and all these things um, feed into the policing, the relationship between police and neighborhoods. So I think it, it's, it's uh, I think it's probably a, a welcome uh, development, uh, but people are still waiting to see kind of how that goes. You know, it, it took a long time to get the carotid restraint off the table. Um, so we'll see what, what happens with the new office. Yeah, it's certainly interesting just seeing how political leaders in San Diego are kind of navigating this moment because that city council meeting when everyone called in about the policing budget, that was a major political hit to pretty much everyone involved. You know, the mayor is termed out. He probably has some bigger sites in the future, and he's often touted as a Republican, assuming Trumpism eventually, you know, changes the party. So there's a lot of people who are thinking, how do I use this moment? And it's really curious to see when people decide to make these specific political moves. 
Exactly. I mean, that's that's really true. I mean, this was people were marching for for many days, weeks, and then all of a sudden, it's I think the realization came that this is this is a different moment. That there's uh, more traction here, a broader base of complaints. Uh, there's more opportunities to address things. A lot of that still has to be shaken out. But I think that's kind of what uh, when the light went on it was around June first. It was like, okay, this isn't going away. This isn't going to abate, and and we need to somehow you know, turn, turn a valve to release the pressure. That's what I think a lot mm-hmm. of this was. It was just sort of like, let's deflate this growing thing a little bit and try to get our feet under us. But it's, this is a long, you know, I mean, this could be a long deal. I mean, you know, notice the, the police unions and, and, and sort of the police advocates have been pretty quiet, you know, kind of keeping their powder dry, not to, to use an unfortunate metaphor, but, you know, not not saying much. And I think that they think in some ways time is on their side and that, you know, you can put 10,000 people on the street, but the decisions are made in the offices in City Hall and they have great access to those offices more than most of the 10,000 people on the street. So I think that's a dynamic that, that um, you know, in the, really in the coming months we'll have to see play out. Yeah, certainly. Perhaps one of the more bigger changes we'll see will be, you know, once uh, the new mayor is sworn in and everything with a new refresh of leaders, that's when you might see more drastic change than what we're seeing right now. Right. And you would probably have seen maybe a different vote there on that on that uh, budgeting vote, which was just astonishing to me that uh, that it went that way in some ways, just given the, the political tenor of the things. I know there are a lot of different uh, uh you know, factors at play there, but that seemed to be um, almost kind of dilute the the whatever effectiveness getting rid of the carotid restraint might have been. It was kind of like, in some ways, it sort of highlighted the, the political motivations of that. That it's like, okay, we'll get rid of the carotid restraint, but we're going to still fully fund them. We're not going to take a dime out of their budget. You know, that was kind of an interesting uh, scenario. Yeah, I'll be curious to see what the next phase is. Greg Moran, thank you so much. You're welcome. In other news, school districts are getting ready to reopen this fall, and many plan to let parents choose what kind of schooling they want for their kids. Normal in-person school, online learning, or a blended model that combines both. A county health order issued Monday allows schools in San Diego County to hold classes on campus as long as they comply with state reopening guidelines and post detailed reopening plans. Several San Diego County school districts anticipate some version of blended learning, with part of their instruction taking place on campus in smaller-than-usual classes and the rest operating at home online. Some districts say they may also offer a parallel track consisting exclusively of online instruction for students who need stricter health precautions or whose parents prefer a more cautious approach. But it's still unclear whether all schools will be financially able to physically reopen or whether sufficient contact tracing or COVID-19 testing will happen by the fall to help keep schools safely open. Thank you for listening to the San Diego News Fix. This podcast is made possible by subscribers to the San Diego Union Tribune. As we live through this momentous time in history, the truth and facts matter. If you are not yet a subscriber, please go to uniontrib.com slash subscribe. Until next time.